Welcome to the Adult Forum at the Episcopal Church of the Holy Communion in University City, Missouri. I'm Mark Smith, Priest Associate at Holy Communion and also the Bishop's Deputy for Violence Prevention in the Episcopal Diocese of Missouri. Since late spring, with the beginning of this season of Pentecost, we've encountered numerous parables in the Gospels recited each Sunday. Parables, in fact, are a dominant feature of worship throughout Pentecost. So important, in fact, are they, and so frequent in, in number, that it's probably fair for us to raise the question, so what's with them anyway? And toward that end, we want to engage in a discussion today about the role of parables, how they inform us in the story of scripture, how they guide us into Jesus' teaching, and perhaps most important for the life of the church, how they shape our faith and practice. And while many of us rightfully associate the concept of a parable with Jesus' teaching, in fact, it is as a genre, uh, a literary vehicle deeply steeped in the Hebrew scriptures, as we see in this citation from the 78th Psalm. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our ancestors have told us. We will not hide them from their children. We will tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord. Clearly, even in ancient Israel, the concept of a parable, a story, was vital to passing on the faith from one generation to the next, but also passing on the great deeds, the great stories of these people, these chosen people, to their children and their children's children. But just as the parable had its clear origins in the writings of the Hebrew scriptures, they take on the form most familiar to us in Jesus' teaching as recorded in the Synoptic Gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as evidenced in this quote from the fourth chapter of Mark. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them except in parables. So what's with these parables anyway? They're crucial. Mark, at least from his perspective, makes it very clear that this is the principle, if not the only vehicle that Jesus used to instruct not only his disciples, but the crowds gathered around him. And so as 21st century Christians, we might opine that if it was good enough for them, it's probably something that we ought to be paying attention to today. Throughout the course of this conversation, I'll be using the phrase story and storytelling. Uh, and it's critical for us to remember that in many respects, the Bible is not only the inspired word of God, it's also the most memorable and profound collection of great stories told by fabulous storytellers. Think about the breadth of stories that we have in Scripture. We begin with two creation narratives that focus on the first man and the first woman confronted by a snake 
who encourages taking a bite out of an apple and causes people to, in fact, discover their own nakedness and ultimately to be expelled by God for eating of the tree of the fruit of knowledge. Then things don't get much better. For generations, people fall away from God. So bad does it become that God decides it's time to obliterate most of creation with a flood, but he rescues Noah, his family, and the animals two by two on an ark. It rains for 40 days and 40 nights, but when it settles, God has a chance along with his chosen family, Noah, and his relatives to begin over again. Then there's perhaps the greatest story of the Hebrew scriptures, the story of the Exodus, story of Moses being saved by the family of the Pharaoh, then demanding of the Pharaoh that the people of Israel be let go and their history of fleeing from Egypt, wandering the desert and discovering the prophet land. But it doesn't end with just Torah, with those first five books of the Hebrew scriptures. The prophets tell great stories. My favorite among them are from Micah, Amos, Hosea, great stories of social justice and how people react with one another and how they are expected to behave in the sight of God. Moving to the New Testament, it begins with the greatest story ever told, the nativity, the incarnation of God in the flesh of Jesus Christ. There's the story of Jesus' ministry throughout the Gospels, and certainly told a great deal. The story of the crucifixion, Jesus' passion, his death, and his resurrection. Storytelling continues in the epistles or letters, St. Paul, as well as those other letters uh, that constitute the remainder of the New Testament. Stories of journeys to far distant lands, to establishing new congregations for the promulgation of the Christian faith. My point only is this, that storytelling and stories are integral to our understanding of the scripture. We're going to take a look for the rest of this conversation at a particular form of storytelling, namely the parable. But first, we need to dive into the weeds for a moment. And I apologize for that, but it will help us make sense out of some dimensions of the parables that I think people find too often confusing. You need to understand that parables are literary devices. They're a genre of figurative language, similar to other forms like proverbs, fables, and metaphors. They're not intended to communicate historical fact. They're intended to communicate a message, a belief, a perspective. And as such, by definition, parables have multiple possible meanings. The technical term for that is polyvalency, multiple possible meanings. Take, for example, as we emerge from the weeds, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, as recorded in Luke. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee 
the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. The tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. Polyvalency. What's Jesus talking about in this parable? Is the Pharisee an obedient faith leader, a paragon of the community? Or are we to understand him as a hypocrite? What's the meaning and use of the term Pharisee in this context? What about the tax collector? Is he a traitor uh, to his own people, an exploiter of them? Or might we understand his role as the legitimate function of government, much like we would understand the IRS? Multiple possible meetings in a parable. Our challenge is to determine how to sift out those meanings. And in fact, to reconcile the fact that in many cases, we can hold those different positions simultaneously. Polyvalency opens, engages, and excites the interpretation of parables. It what allows us preachers to look at the same text, the same parable every three years and preach a different sermon because there are subtle differences, subtle nuances to which we must be attentive. The interpretation of parables has a history unto itself. We aren't the first generation to recognize how important they are. In fact, it goes back to the early Christian church. Uh, and the methods that have been used include uh, allegorical interpretation, unequivocal, and historical interpretation, and most recently, metaphorical strategies to interpret. And what do we mean by that? Think, for example, about the parable of the Good Samaritan and how this has been interpreted over time in those three and four phases of interpretation. From the 10th chapter of Luke, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise was a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. 
Which of these three, do you think, was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Perhaps one of the most familiar of all parables, but the interpretations have taken on vastly different characters. St. Augustine in the early Christian church was most associated with the allegorical school of interpretation started by an earlier theologian named Origen. In his interpretation, the man, the man going down to Jericho, might be understood as Adam. The thieves as the devil and his many minions. To be stripped was a reference to human mortality. The Samaritan, allegorically, St. Augustine thought of as Jesus and the inn, that place where you found refuge and respite was the church. Okay, so allegory took on the characteristic of symbolism. What does this look like? And in fact, allegorical interpretation uh, ruled much of biblical scholarship until the early to mid part of the 18th century. In the early 19th century, uh, a German theologian, Adolf Ulicker, developed the concept of unequivocal interpretation. Uh, in fact, uh, it might be understood uh, best uh, in this parable in its last phrase, go and do the same. For Ulicker, the interpretation of parables was to be straightforward. The text is what it is, it says what it says, nothing less, nothing more. It is, as you might guess, rigid. The renowned British theologian uh, at the turn of the century, C.H. Dodd, developed an historical method for understanding the parables, and in fact applied it to other portions of scripture as well. In his view, the intrigue in this particular parable are the dangers of travel in the ancient Near East. Uh, the conflict between Jews and Samaritans, uh, and the tension between the lawyer who posed the question and Jesus himself. So for Dodd, the question of context, the nature of the world in which the parable was being told, and its many characteristics, both personal and geographical. And finally, in the 20th and 21st century, uh, a school of interpretation known for its metaphorical understanding of the parables, among its uh, most prominent uh, advocates being Dominic Crossan. Uh, in this particular case, uh, Crossan would argue that, in fact, you need to default to an earlier analysis because of the clear understanding of the parable. Its phrase, go and do the same. There is no metaphor. Uh, in Crossan's uh, 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 understanding of this particular text. So what we have is over the course of uh, more than 2,000 years, uh, various schools of thought that come to understand parables through unique paradigms, unique lenses, lenses of symbolism, lenses of text, lenses of historical context, and then the lens of poetry. 
metaphor. So what are we to do? If we have these different schools of thought, and even as we do, we find each contributing to, but not sufficient to explain the parables as we just encountered with Crossan's difficulty of applying metaphorical analysis uh, to the parable of the Good Samaritan, we have a new model developed by Vernon Robbins at Emory University School of Theology uh, and championed by uh, Father John Donahue and any number of others, including William Brosnan at uh, the School of Theology at the University of the South at Swanee. Socio-rhetorical criticism offers the following dimensions that it would proffer define the essence of parable interpretation. First is to understand the inner texture of the parable. That is the story as Jesus told it. What was Jesus saying? What are the, what's the text? No assumptions, no deletions, no additions. What is the story simply as Jesus told it? In some respects, comparable to the unequivocal model we discussed just a moment ago. The second step in socio-rhetorical criticism is intertexture. What's the world behind the text? What's going on, much as Dodd's historical method might be, uh, might be similar? There's a sociocultural texture as well. What's the consequence for a Jew of touching a Samaritan? In fact, in this particular case, it would mean that the Jew would be unclean, unable to attend to temple and ritual duties. Then we have to deal with not only the biases of the author, but also of those of us who are doing the interpretation, hence the ideological texture of the text. What do we bring? What did the author bring? What lenses do any of us use in looking at the basic text? And finally, socio-rhetorical criticism asks us to consider the sacred texture of the parable, how it shapes our faith and the way we live our lives. Its proponents would suggest that this methodology, the five component parts, are the essence of interpreting the parables fully, accurately, and applying them to our lives. But first, I think it's high time that we offer a definition of what we mean by a parable. Now, for many of you who were uh, active in your own Sunday schools, you might remember the classic definition, a parable is a story within a story. And indeed, in no small measure, that's true. But parables, as I suspect you've already detected, are far more complicated. C.H. Dodd, who I've mentioned uh, before, uh, has perhaps provided the most enduring definition of a parable. At its simplest, a parable is a metaphor or simile drawn from nature or the common life, arresting the hearer by its vividness or strangeness and leaving the mind in sufficient doubt about its precise application to tease it into active thought. 
Let's break that down. First of all, a parable is a metaphor or a simile. And two examples uh, to illustrate that point. As a metaphor, listen to this from Matthew. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. It is light. It is different. Again, I tell you, it is easier. Now, the simile, also from Matthew, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. So the parable will be constituted with one or both of these models, both a metaphor or a simile. Parable also is drawn from nature or common life of the community. But here's a problem. There's a difficulty in comparing life in first century Palestine, which is the context in which the parables were spoken and written, and 21st century America. We don't have the same understanding of mustard seeds, fig trees, and perhaps even wedding banquets uh, that others did. And we do well perhaps to look at that great banquet, a great supper in Luke's 14th chapter to illustrate the point. Then Jesus said to him, someone gave a great dinner and invited many. At the time for the dinner, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a piece of land and I must go out and see it. Please accept my regrets. Another said, I bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. Please accept my regrets. Another said, I've just been married and therefore I cannot come. So the slave returned and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and said to his slave, go out at once into the streets and lanes of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And the slave said, sir, what you ordered has been done, and there is still room. Then the master said to the slave, go out into the roads and lanes and compel people to come in so that my house may be filled. What is it? that Luke is trying to convey in this parable of the Great Supper and how difficult it is for us to translate it. First of all, how many of us have the means to offer such a banquet for no apparent reason other than to celebrate? How many of us have people in our employ to request that we invite the poor, the crippled, and the lame when many of us know few of them. And certainly, how many of us are adventurous enough to say, bring in everybody from around the villages and the towns so that my house may be filled. This may have been somewhat common in the villages of Palestine, but it's not part of our own experience. So what do we do with that? 
Well, we go then to a third dimension. Parables arrest hearers by their vividness or their strangeness. The tax collector from our earlier parable goes home justified, but not the hyper-religious Pharisee. Wait a minute. The tax collector who by all indications is a traitor to his own people. He's working for the empire, the oppressors. He's the one who's going to be justified and not this faithful Pharisee, not this hyper-religious man, despite his, his hubris, despite his arrogance. Really? That is strange. Then there's the parable of the wicked tenants where we begin to see a real sense of vivid reality. From the 12th chapter of Mark, then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenants and went to another country. When the season came, he sent a slave to the tenants to collect from them his share of the produce of the vineyard. But they seized him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again he sent another slave to them. This one they beat over the head and insulted. Then he sent another, and that one they killed. And so it was with many others. Some they beat and others they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Talk about vivid, greed, brutality, murder, all combined in this story. God's definition of a parable also reminds us that it is about leaving our minds in doubt about their application. And for that, perhaps there's nothing more prominent than the parable of the dishonest steward. Then Jesus said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So he summoned him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. Then the manager said to himself, what will I do now that the master is taking the position away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I am dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? He answered, a hundred jugs of olive oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 50. 
Then he asked another, and how much do you owe? He replied, a hundred containers of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and make it 80. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. Really? The steward rips off his manager. Well, first, the steward mishandles the assets entrusted to his care. Then he rips off his manager, and what does the master do? He compliments him for being shrewd. How then would we apply this? How? What can it possibly mean? Perhaps Jesus is suggesting that there's actually something more important than the accumulation of wealth. But we don't know. Parables also tease us into active thought, not passive, but active engagement with the text. The difference between I knew that or Huh, I never thought of that before. Think about the parable of the Good Samaritan. We tend to focus both in preaching and in studying on the question, who will I help? Would I have done that? What are the barriers to my caring for those in need? But what if we preached it from the perspective of the man who had been robbed and stripped and left for dead. What if we preached it as Brosnan has, as the sermon from the ditch? Instead of asking, who will I help? We might ask, from whom will I accept help? And for what? A careful reading of the parables challenges us to just those questions. The parables are rich in more ways than we can even begin to imagine and certainly recount in this conversation. And as we meet on Sunday uh, to discuss them in some greater detail, we'll explore some of those and look forward to your own engagement with them. But in the meantime, we'll pray. Gracious Lord, we praise you and bless you for coming to us in ways that we are able to see and hear. In your child Jesus, and in his blessed words, most chiefly in parable. Grant that we will ever be aware of all the ways that you speak to us and use us, we pray, to show and share the glorious good news that Jesus Christ is Lord, to your glory now and forever. Amen. Speaking of getting together on Sunday, uh, I have several questions that you might consider. The first is, what's your favorite parable and why? How has it impacted the way you live your faith? Second, what parables do you find the most confusing disruptive or disturbing? 
Did anything in this presentation provide you with new tools or a new perspective, a new lens to help make sense out of them? And if so, how? And finally, which parables, if any, have changed your perspective on the world we inhabit and how? Thank you so much for joining us for this discussion of the parables. What is it about them anyway?